Hey, I'm Dave Rubin and this is The Rubin Report. Reminder everybody, you can get all of our full episodes absolutely ad-free five full days early at rubinreport.com. And more importantly, joining me today is the Managing Director of Ideas Beyond Borders as well as the New York Editor for Spectator Magazine, Melissa Chen. Welcome to The Rubin Report. Hi Dave, thank you for having me. I cannot believe that this is your first solo appearance on The Rubin Report. You were on the show way back when, when we were on Aura TV, that's something like 20, 25 years ago, I think at this point, uh, with our friend Faisal Amutar, <laughs> who is, uh, who's your cohort at Ideas Beyond Borders. Yes. Um, there's a ton I wanna talk to you about, uh, of course, but um, can you just very quickly, who, who is Melissa Chen? How did you get to The Rubin Report? Well, I, I have to thank you for having me on again, because that last time with when I did it with Faisal, I had the worst hair possible. I was, for some reason, <laughs> identifying as a male K-pop star, and I don't know what was going on. So <laughs> I, I'm thankful to have another chance to, to show what it actually can look like, potentially. Um, so yes, my name your is hair is looking very and, um, luxurious, by the way. Which is hard to do when there's no barbers, okay? So... Um, I'll put that out there. Um, so my name is Melissa, and um, I now also am a journalist. I, I write for Spectator, um, which is a British magazine. And um, I also run a nonprofit organization called Ideas Beyond Borders, together with uh, Faisal Al-Mutar, who's a dear friend of both me and Dave's for a long time. Um, I grew up in Singapore, so you know I only came to the US when I was about 17, uh, came for college loved the experience of living in a place with so much civil liberties. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I stayed after college. I have actually a background in computational biology. That was my degree. Um, and like a good Asian or a bad Asian, I guess, I'm not using my degree. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I ended up running a nonprofit and, and um, you know, writing. So that's, that's how I got here. Yeah. All right. Very good. Let's just quickly uh, recap a little bit about what you guys are doing with Ideas Beyond Borders. And then I want to focus more on what you've been doing related to coronavirus, some interesting stuff in New York City, trying to get people supplies. And, and you have some knowledge on what's going on with China and the rest of it. But just tell everybody a little bit about Ideas Beyond Borders. Because before Corona, there was a whole other world out there and you guys were doing some really great stuff and, and continue to do. Right. I mean, it's interesting because early you know, early January of 2020, the focus of this world was on the Middle East, right? Right after the whole uh, General Soleimani was was killed in Iran, and that was shifting the the focus to to that part of the world. It seemed like a hotspot. There were protests going on in Lebanon and Iraq, um, and so you know that seemed like to be start of World War III or something. And all of a sudden, coronavirus just it just consumed everything. Um, so Ideas Beyond Borders is a nonprofit organization founded by my friend Faisal, who is an Iraqi refugee. And what we do is we take ideas that are not available in you know, Arabic, translate them into the language, and make them freely available. We focus on ideas about science, about philosophy, and about civil rights, pro-liberty ideas, basically. Um, and the idea is just, you know, if you have a heteronormative, um, heteronormative, sorry, heterodox um, you know, if you're exposed to heterodox ideas, that it, it would challenge people's minds and it will open up uh, dogmatic thinking. So that was the reason Ideas Beyond Borders was founded. And actually today, not only have we done a ton of books, Wikipedia articles, um, we've also done videos. 
And right now we're actually combating a lot of the misinformation about coronavirus in Arabic, because ever since China released that whole uh, propaganda theory about, you know, the um, thing about like the US army was the one that released the virus. Mm -hmm, um, that's, mm -hmm. that's the kind of like conspiracy theories that take root in the Arab world. That's what they want to believe. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're obviously going to focus a lot on that. But very quickly, you mentioned that you grew up in Singapore until you were 16, 17 years old. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like and why that kind of led you to being someone that actually cares about freedom of expression and open inquiry and all that good liberty stuff that you talk about? I mean, Singapore is a great place to grow up. In a way, it's very stable, very safe um, and very affluent as a country. Um, very, very high GDP per capita. But the one thing that we didn't have was was um, political freedoms. So Singapore is ranked pretty low in terms of freedom of the press, freedom of speech, um, and also, you know, very basic things like uh, there's absolutely no freedom to assemble. So if you decided to go into a public square and hold a sign that said something like, um, I don't know, impeach the prime minister or something, or even just against the death penalty, um, you would be arrested that, because you didn't get a permit for, for, you know, for the protest. Um, and, and that's the kind of uh, very ordered place, uh, very ordered society that it has created. Um, but but for, for me, it's always kind of been this, this thing on my shoulder kind of weighed down on me that, you know, you couldn't just speak your mind. You always had to, to, to self-censor. And it, was, it just... I knew I wanted to be in a place where, where you know, this was just not even, I, I didn't have to think about it, that you could just be free, be free, you know, to be yourself. Yeah. So that's How why are we I doing chose with that United in America States. these days? <laughs> you know what? Still a lot better, but, but it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear and, and see that um, we're, we're, you know, that these freedoms are slowly being eroded. And willingly, we're doing it to ourselves. And, and it may not be coming from the government, but, but when you have this kind of mob rule and cancel culture, it, it, it is a de facto censorship. Um, and it, it ends up having similar effects on your psyche, on society as a whole. And, you know, it kind of like bubbles up. But um, it's still very different, I would have to say. You know, like there's a difference between getting disappeared by your government and getting jailed by your government. Um, for saying the wrong thing than it is to, to lose your job, but still sucks. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's, uh, let's talk a bit about Corona and China and some of the things that you've been doing. So first I wanna start, you had a, a tweet thread recently that you found a donor yeah. who wanted to put a whole bunch of money to get doctors and nurses. He was a donor nurses. my organization. Yeah, and, and he wanted to put money in so that doctors and nurses could get masks. That's sort of the short version of it. And suddenly you found out that there is a lot of red tape to make what should be simple things happen actually happen. Right, right. Um, so, you know, this, what they call personal protective equipment, short of, would be PPE. It includes masks, gowns, you know, the face shields and everything that um, healthcare workers really need to use to protect themselves. And uh, a lot of people had been talking about, okay, you know what, we, we were in dire need of this. We didn't stockpile. A lot of the hospitals didn't stockpile. The states didn't do it. Um, and so, you know, when you have a sudden rush of cases, as you did in New York City, the ICUs were, were overcapacitated. Um, that's when, you know, 
hospitals realize that, oh no, we're running out of PPEs very quickly. We're just going through them such quick rate. Um, and, and it was a huge shortage. And it's not just in the United States, it's pretty much anywhere else, you know, Italy's facing the same problem as well. Um, so very, very kind donor reached out and said, I really want to help. And he's not the only one. There are a lot of people that, you know, I mean, it's one of the best things about America is, 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 is this in, ingenuity from, from just average people who just, you know, when there's a problem, they just step up and, and want to just contribute somehow. Um, and so what we started, what I started finding was, okay, I got, I, I got people saying that a uh, hospital saying, you know, we need, we need these, we need the PPE so badly. Healthcare workers are saying the same thing. And then donors are coming forward, but then to even make that match happen and get the masks to, to the people that need them was a complete Kafka-esque nightmare. Um, and it's in part due to all the different layers of regulation, starting with, you know, the, the employers basically said, if you, if you talk to the press or if you post about it on social media, you might get fired. And I think there was a case where a doctor in um, Washington state was fired for, for basically mm-hmm. blabbering mm-hmm. about the, the shortage. And then you have the CDC and the WHO saying, you know what, masks are not needed, right? This, this was some rhetoric that's been kind of circulating since the, the, the crisis started. And, and that helps hospitals kind of like, CYA, you know, cover your ass. Because if masks are not needed, then the onus isn't on them to, to stock up and protect the workers. Um, it, it basically like protects them. It gives them some liability. If, if let's say you, you die on the job or something, then they, you know, it's harder to sue because it's not, it's not, um, it's not required, right? The CDC just said, you know, don't really need masks. And then you have compliance issues. So like the FDA, you know, they need to certify all the incoming, um, the, the masks for, you know, does it do what it says it does and everything. But then different layers of, cert- of certification, different agencies have different um, standards. And, um, and then you have this like bidding war. So like all 50 states are bidding. The feds are bidding um, for the same, you know, supply pool. And, and then you have NGOs and then you have the global market and, and we're all just end up bidding against each other and just driving the price up. And then it's, 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 you know, what, what should have been done is like, you know, perhaps start off with some sort of like a, all the governors kind of come together to start a consortium and, and, and bid, right, against global actors as well. Um, and it's just, there's just so much redundancy, opaqueness built into this entire market that it's been so difficult trying to get um, PPEs to, to the hospitals. Um, and, and the last, yeah, so the, I, the other I know that a lot, of, a lot of my audience a lot of my audience hearing this is going to go, oh, yeah, well, of course. I mean, regulation, red tape, this is exactly what the government does to get us all in a boondoggle where prices drive up, nobody can get what they want and, and the rest of it. Yeah. Um, so would you, is the best way to just get rid of all the red tape? How do we then make sure that, you know, products that actually work are the ones getting to us if, if there's no regulation whatsoever? I'm slightly playing the well, devil's there's short, there's, there's short-term, long-term issues. So... One of the so one of the stories that was that came out was this Brooklyn man was apparently hoarding. He had started purchasing millions of masks or something and was hoarding a lot of them. And we're so concerned about price gouging that you know if you're an importer here, you don't want to be guilty of price gouging. So you don't you don't import the masks because of the the price fluctuations and the, the you know the feds are going to come after you as they did after this Brooklyn man who basically did nothing wrong except 
buy a ton of masks and, and hold on to them. That's his property. And they, you know, they came and they, they seized it. Um, and these, while this is good intention, you know, we, we should, businesses or people shouldn't be trying to make a profit during a crisis. Um, the problem is that the, the price, when it, when it goes up, is basically an incentive for producers to produce. So mm -hmm. we should be letting the prices fluctuate, right? Because then we can rush to meet the demand. And it's, it's one of those, you know, policies or, or sentiments that just has unintended consequences. It sounds good in principle, but, but it has unintended consequences. Um, I, I, I think, you know, the, the short term is we might need to sort of be a bit more protectionist, right? I think it made sense to have export controls to prevent our current supply of PPEs leaving the country. We should have done that. Um, but then in the long term, we have to let the prices, we have to let the market you know, fluctuate um, because it's going to correct itself. But, you know, people, you know what Facebook did? Facebook prevented uh, mask advertisements. So if you were, you know, because they were concerned about a hoarding issue. So they basically said, all right, I can advertise now. But then if you were really engineer and you came up with a way to, you know, uh, 3D print a mask, now you raise money for the Kickstarter. Yeah. So it's really, really shooting ourselves in the foot. So you mentioned the WHO, the World Health Organization, and the CDC, the Center for Disease Control. It seems like in the last month, the messaging out of the WHO specifically has been just absolutely all over the place. And you know, there's some people that say, oh, well, they didn't want to push people into masks sort of for the reasons you're saying, because then regular people who maybe don't need them are going to get all the masks. The people who need them uh, won't have access to them. But have they as an organization really just kind of flubbed this thing from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the w, there's no question that the WHO has, you know, basically abandoned its duties um, in so many ways. I mean, you can go all the way back to December. Um, you, if you go back to December 30th, that's when um, China first reported to the WHO, you know, that there were these cases, uh, you know, a cluster in Wuhan, about 41 people. That was the first time it was reported. Um, a day later, on the 31st of January, New Year's Eve, Wuhan basically said to the WHO, hey, we have heard that this is really serious and that there's human to human transmission. This was on the 31st of December. And the reason Taiwan knew about this was because there were Taiwanese doctors who had heard from their mainland colleagues that the medical staff in Wuhan were getting sick. So that's how you know human to human transmissions occurring. It's when, you know, it's not animal to person, but person to person, it's, it, the patients are transferring it to, to the doctors. So Taiwan reports this and it takes weeks before you know, I think on the 14th of January, you still had that famous tweet by, by the WHO saying there's still no evidence of human to human transmission. Two weeks after Taiwan mm. told them that there was. And, and this has um, been the story of how they've handled this. They've cowed out yeah. to China. Wait, let's, actually, let's, just, um, let's just pause there for one sec, though. Let's just pause there for one sec. What is that? Like, what do you think structurally, as someone that knows about organizations like this, like, what happened in those two weeks? Did, were they intentionally misleading us? Did they just completely drop the ball? Was there political pressure? Was it, oh, they didn't want to be too alarmist? I mean, is it some combination of all of those things? Um, no, actually, the problem is that Ty 
Taiwan doesn't have membership to the WHO. So China has very successfully muscled Taiwan out. So Taiwan's not recognized as, as a, a member. And, and you know, for Taiwan, that's very dangerous because you know, if you don't have that connection to the WHO, you are not plugged into this global health alert system. And the global health alert system is not plugged into Taiwan. So whatever intel Taiwan had was completely missed. Um, and then the worst part for Taiwan is that because China basically muscled them out, when all the other countries were placing travel bans, um, they were trying to ban you know, China, uh, people from China traveling to their countries, they inadvertently banned Taiwan because Taiwan was seen as part of China, which is what China wants. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the WHO drops the ball and then we've subsequently seen some other strange tweets and we've seen some, some strange statements by, by some of their representatives. Um, Trump was talking about a ban from China back in January, right? Yeah. Um, he instituted the ban, I think, uh, 30th or 1st of January. That's when the ban actually happened. But at the time, the WHO yeah. was saying that they shouldn't do it, that you shouldn't restrict travel to China. And shortly after that, also, the Chinese foreign ministry said that um, they, he, they reacted very badly to Trump's ban, saying that was, it was racist and xenophobic um, to institute the ban. Yeah, surprise, surprise. So what, what do you make of the fact that now, because hindsight is twenty twenty, people are saying, oh, Trump didn't do anything in February. Everyone knew that this was going to happen. Trump didn't do anything. I checked yesterday, and it turns out that, you know, there was a Democratic debate on February, I think it's 7th, 19th, and 25th. None of those debates mentioned anything about coronavirus, oddly, yet the media is now telling us that everybody was talking about all of this stuff in February. Um, oh, no, they were not. Could, could he have done more? Should he have done more? How do you balance keeping people sane and keeping the economy open versus a potential looming threat, all of that? I mean, he, he did suggest that he was somewhat distracted by the impeachment proceedings. And for the whole month of February, you did have our journalist class doing one of two things, saying that this was just, you know, kind of the flu, just, not, just another flu, or warning people about, you know, that, that the stigma against Asian Americans were, was worse than the virus itself. And so even on the 9th of February, you had the health officials in New York City saying, come out for our Lunar New Year parade, everything's okay, life is normal, you know, stand up to xenophobia and racism. So they were still acting as if, um, understandably, a lot of people missed this, um, you know, it's okay, let's all just party and mix and, and you know, stand in defiance to, to, this, uh, to this virus. So a lot of people missed it, but I read yesterday that on the 29th of January, that Pino Navarro, who was the trade official in, in Trump's cabinet, um, actually wrote a memo warning and saying that this virus is the real deal. And there's gonna be, you know, at, at worst, two million deaths. At best, a hundred thousand. But we gotta act on it. And uh, he proposed actually a travel ban. Trump said he didn't read the memo. But shortly after, on the thirty-first, he actually he actually did put down the travel ban. Um, that's one of the you know the good things about Trump is that he didn't really care about that. And this this virus actually really fit in well with his ideological priors. You know, for being conservative on immigration. 
um, mm-hmm. and being a bit more nationalistic in terms of, of trade and engagement. America first. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about just like the inner machinations of China? Because right now it's like just in the last few days, we've seen this thing where, you know, U.S. cases are spiking, but China is reporting no new cases, no new deaths. And it's like, all right, well, just be, and then NBC News will literally make that statement. The AP will make that statement. And it's like, well, I guess that's sort of reporting in that you're reporting what China's reporting, but that's not really independent reporting. Like, can you just talk a little bit about how, how information can or can't travel in China? You know, the media's job is to be skeptical. And towards that end, they are very skeptical when it comes to reporting about the Trump administration but they're not affording that same approach to the Chinese government when of all people who you should be skeptical about, it should be numbers that are coming of a very closed authoritarian society. Um, And, you know, I don't think, I think China has had a history of covering up numbers in general. People are very skeptical about even numbers coming out from their GDP calculations, um, how they miraculously always meet exactly 6% 6% growth target, like exact. Um, so they have the history of, of hiding things and the fact that they had no qualms suppressing the whistleblower, censoring their, their social media. Um, why, you know, why would they, we not assume that they're, they're covering up their, their numbers? So if we can't trust the numbers that we're getting out of China, and sadly, we can't really trust our own media to report on it properly rather than just regurgitate the numbers, how do we get some sensible information out of China? Is there a way to do it that you can truly trust? Well, you know, the CIA apparently, they, they submitted a classified report to the White House. So Bloomberg reported on it. Um, and, they actually basically said that they've been trying to verify China's numbers and they were unable to. So, you know, apart from intelligence agencies or using some sort of proxy, um, I think a lot of people saw these videos that were circulated in social media, um, all the urns that were, you know, going to funeral homes and it didn't seem to match up with with uh, rep- what was reported. Um, the problem is that a lot of these videos, once they get posted by citizen journalists on the ground in Wuhan, ended up, you know, they end up getting taken down so fast. So information out of China is just unreliable. And I mean, unfortunately, the only thing that we have to we have to work with the numbers you're submitting to the WHO. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more just generally about our relationship with China? China's sort of geopolitical ambitions and some of the stuff that they've been doing that has kind of led us to this really precarious point? Well, China's you know, been on the ascendancy for a long time, ever since Deng Xiaoping instituted um, market reforms. Um, they, they insist on calling it socialism with Chinese characteristics. And that's really just a euphemism for moving it in a more capitalistic direction. Um, and it's been, it's been slowly liberalizing economically and we've, you know, engaged with China since uh, Richard Nixon and went in and, and built that relationship. And every president so far has, has engaged with them. You know, we, we've sort of subscribed to this idea that 
um, the more interconnected our markets are and, and the, the richer China becomes, eventually it's, it's going to liberalize politically as well, that you'll see freedoms come in, you know, that, that the, the average person in China with, who's more affluent will start demanding to have freedom of speech and, uh, you know, political freedoms to vote their, their, their leaders out. And that just hasn't been the case at all. And if anything, China has become far more powerful than they've been. And they're also growing in their ambitions. So you can see this with their you know, military expansions in the South China Sea, um, the Belt and Road Initiative, which is basically this infrastructure project um, where they sign up all these countries around the world to build infrastructure. And, and, and that becomes like what they call debt trap um, diplomacy. Um, so they're holding, mm -hmm. beholding them in a, in a way that, and using that as economic, uh, their economic clout as a way to, to have leverage on these countries. So the, the Chinese system is really not compatible with the U.S.'s vision for the world and also values. Um, and I think it's quite clear that we're becoming strategic rivals and that, in fact, there's a good argument to be made also that China is posing a very, you know, possible existential threat to the United States. So are you saying that for the two plus years that we were focused on Russia and Ukraine, perhaps we should have been focused elsewhere and that our eye was off the ball because of some other nonsense? Is that what you're getting at? Well, you know, one of Trump's campaign promises was, uh, you know, he, he, did, he has been talking about China a lot. You, you've seen these clips like China when he does that. Um, that's <laughs> just a central issue to his, his platform. And he's been talking about it for a long time, that, that we got a very bad trade deal with them and he was going to come in and fix it. Uh, the problem with his rhetoric was that he didn't, he didn't, um, so he, he sort of talked about it in the sense of making America strong again economically, bringing back jobs home, uh, bringing jobs home. But he, he didn't talk about it, frame it in terms of this geopolitical struggle, which it is. Um, maybe that's because of the need to, you know, to, to still have some formal relationship and, and, you know, in real politic with China, um, and that would really offend them. But, but all, you know, China analysts and, and, you know, people who have been on the ball on this issue um, have been have been sounding the alarm for a while. Like, you know, it's look at how they're able to coerce us, even outside of their own borders, to to uh, basically parrot their orthodoxy when it comes to, um, you know, the whole NBA, Hong Kong fiasco, um, or even, you know, what, what kind of messages are, are embedded in our movies. So you can see that, like, they've been trying to, to influence from, from afar. How dangerous is it that we owe them a lot of money? These are our creditors. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're never going to pay that money back. Where does that put us? and a very precarious position. Um, but there are also very strong signs that the Chinese economy itself is not very sustainable um, and that there are issues that, you know, it's, it's, we're just waiting for this bubble to pop. Um, so, you know, not having, being indebted to China obviously is giving us you know, a lot of issues when it comes to leverage. And it's also a little bit of an embarrassment that the world's superpowers unable to you know, have that financial hold over its, over a, a trading partner that's also a strategic rival, um, but you know, I mean, Trump has actually ballooned that that trade right since uh, our deficit since since he came into office, and 
the way this crisis is going to go, that's just going to get even worse with our economy. Yeah. And it's not just our economy and our government that's in bed with China, right? I mean, we've got, you know, the NBA in bed with China. We've got universities in bed with China, you know, giant corporations. So yeah. it, there's a there's a multi-layered element to this, right? Companies, too. You talked about NBC just now, right? Um, NBC's parent company, Comcast, actually has big deals in China. They've invested billions of dollars to build a minion land this like theme parks i mean i can't think of anything worse like to me that is literally hell it, it's getting is it's being in minion land in beijing um so they've invested billions in these theme parks harry potter village and you know you can just imagine it, when when china what china did to the nba after one general manager mm -hmm. said something about hong kong where they just canceled you know all the screenings of, of the NBA in China. That was how they retaliated when they didn't like what one NBA manager tweeted. Can you imagine, you know, the kind of leverage over media companies, over Hollywood companies, because, you know, they have business dealings with them? What, what do you make of the way that everyone falls into line when it comes to China? So like that NBA thing was pretty, pretty amazing because it was a random general manager, I think, for the Houston Rockets or even maybe it was even an assistant general manager, but a guy that nobody really knew his name outside yeah. of the. Yeah, but but nobody. So he was the, the he is the general manager. Right. And, yeah. and nobody but nobody really knows his name out of outside of yeah. the basketball world. But after that happened, the amount of NBA players, LeBron James included, who all sort of bowed to China, the same people who will go on and on and rip America as a racist, evil state and tell you that Trump is Hitler. Uh, but, but immediately, like all of them, the entire league uh, suddenly was bowing. Steve Kerr is a great example of that, you know, who runs around saying how awful Trump is and everything else. But suddenly when it came to China, ooh, gotta, gotta right, shut up right. pretty quick. Well, the Chinese market is, is much larger than the US market for the NBA. And they've been trying to get into China for a long time. So this has been, you know, for them, just the biggest moneymaker, not to mention all the licensing deals, NBA stores there, shoe companies and all that. Um, I would say there's actually one player that's been pretty good on this China issue, and that is Anis Cantor. And that's because he himself mm -hmm. knows what it's like to live under an authoritarian and what it's like to stand up to one. Turkish prime minister. In Turkish uh, in this case, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's it's a shame that market access alone uh, can really modify our behavior so much to the point where, you know, these players who are so quick to, to support causes and, you know, they, there was an NBA boycott of North Carolina because of the bathroom bills that when it came to sticking up for our values, um, for the right of a, you know, American to just have an opinion about Hong Kong, all of a sudden it just went out the window. That's really sad. Yeah. Well, by the way, what's the latest in Hong Kong? I mean, with everything going on right now, we don't hear anything about Hong Kong no. anymore. But I well, mean, they, the, were, they were singing the nope. national anthem on the streets. Yeah, yeah. But the American national anthem. And they were, they were waving the flags and also waving the Union Jack. Um, well, the coronavirus obviously has rendered all protests impossible, right? So in that sense, it's really muted that down. Um, and also recently, well, they, they had this anti-masking law, uh, the, the chief executive of Hong Kong, 
because they didn't want their protesters to be able to mask up. But now, because everybody actually has to wear masks uh, to protect themselves against the coronavirus, they had to rewrite the law. So that's the last I, I heard about about Hong Kong. But there are no protests going on now, and it's it's a shame because you know the it's so moving to see young people on the streets standing up against tyranny, standing up against authoritarianism. What's your sense that once we get past this thing, which I assume you believe we'll get past it, uh, how some of the nature of the relationship with China will change? Or at least our discussion about what they're doing? I think, um, in a way, America has woken up to this. Um, it shouldn't have taken this, right? But we've woken up to uh, the fact that our industrial supply chain was located inside an adver adversary. Um, our medical, you know, life-saving medical drugs, all the active ingredients or, or drugs were also made in China. Um, and, and just people are starting to see and wake up to this, this fact that there is a clash in value systems between the two countries. And it cannot be, it just couldn't be more clear now. It should have been clear to, to us, you know, what, what they did with the NBA, um, the Hong Kong issue. It should have been clear then. But, but now it's really hitting us. And I think, I mean, I've seen a lot of people now express the view, you know what, I don't care about the cheap stuff anymore. I, I'd rather just pay more and, and, and be secure and, 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 you know, have our supply chains relocated back to America, especially when it comes to the sensitive stuff. Not talking about, you know, making crayons or something. We're talking about, you know, the, a, anything to do with, with tech, uh, the higher value add um, items. Yeah. So moving away from China a little bit, uh, for our remaining time, you're, you're a pretty astute observer of what's happening in America, too. And I, and I know you've sort of been on your own uh, political journey over the last couple of years that I think in some ways is, is sort of similar to mine, even though we come, obviously, from a, a very different starting point. What, what do you make about what's happening right now politically in America, the way the conversation is? Um, as we're taping this today, we just found out that Bernie Sanders is dropping out. We're holding this for a little bit. Um, do you think Biden can even do this? Where, where are you at with Trump? What's your, what's your general take? As, as the New York editor of Spectator Magazine, which is actually one of the few uh, places of journalism that I don't have to use air quotes around, which is a really refreshing thing. Yeah, I mean, well, I'm I'm really excited that they they gave me an opportunity, and you know, I, I don't think I've ever they've never tried to 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 muzzle me or, or steer me into into an ideological um, track. It's just write whatever you want, pitch whatever you want, and so in that sense, I do have a lot of journalistic freedom. Um, in terms of where America is politically, this this coronavirus issue really threw threw a wrench into it, right? Like. We were all kind of going along and all of a sudden the news just changed overnight, just completely saturated. And at this point, it's not even clear if, if things are going to get lifted. Like I'm hearing conversations now about, about voting and, and you know, whether we're going to do this mail voting at some point. Um, I, I don't know. But suffice to say, there is a lot of dissatisfaction about Joe Biden. Um, and I think I wrote a piece for Spectator about how I don't think the media actually vetted him properly. I don't think they put him through the gauntlet um, in a way that they did do to every other candidate, right? If you looked at 
Pete Buttigieg, uh, Bloomberg, uh, even Andrew Yang, you would find a hit piece on the New York Times about how they were either racist in their past or sexist, except maybe Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. But um, there's something there. Um, and, and Biden just wasn't put through the same pressures. And so he's emerged. And now, you know, the big question is about his, um, elect, well, his, his mental state. Does he have the, the, not just temperament, but, but is he, you know, sane enough to, to actually be the president of the United States? And uh, when he's coming up against Trump, it's, it's the optics, it's going to look, it's going to look so bad. But, you know, the issue is at the end of the day, the math just didn't work out for Bernie. I know a lot of people liked him. Um, I know, you know, your and my friend now, I guess, Joe Rogan really liked Bernie too. But I see a lot of um, people kind of echoing what he said, which is, you know, Bernie or bust on the left. And it's creating such a, such a big rift. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to get resolved. Yeah. So as someone that's now in the media, what do you make of the media these days? Because I'm sort of like, man, there, you know, a lot of us have been screaming about the media for a while. And I think maybe now that so many people are trapped at home and they're forced online more, I think it's becoming more and more obvious to people that maybe weren't taking the temperature. So that if you were watching CNN with their selectively edited Trump quotes, and normally you wouldn't pay that much attention to it, now you're stuck at home online and you're seeing full quotes be shared by other people where they stop his sentence right after he says, but this da 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 da. Um, do you sense that the media has just gone completely crazy? Is there a way to get them to come back? I mean, can the New York Times reel it back in? Can the CNN reel it back in? Or have they just chosen a model that they think is best, which is, well, I guess lie because that's what your base wants, that some, something like that? Well, I saw that CBS was using clips of you know video clips of Italy to to when they yep. were talking about the New York situation and and that is just it's gaslighting Italian and hospitals it's really they were eroding. literally showing Italian right. hospitals it's it it does erode the public trust I mean I think we have to separate between the opinion pieces and the actual reporting you know the international bureau these big organizations right like the New York Times they do excellent reporting when it comes to the Middle East, I mean, even on China, right, which recently expelled Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and the New York Times journalists that were there for decades, expelled out of Beijing. And now we don't have eyes on there. Um, you have opinion pieces and activist journalists. That's really where, where, you know, I think the problem is. And apart from just, you know, the business model issue, which, which I think we haven't really solved yet, you've kind of, you know, going, you've actually kind of built a platform to solve it but that is one of the reasons why that you know this this world of activism journalism exists it's 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 clickbaity and the incentives that reward that kind of journalism is still there um i i, I don't know how 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 to solve this it's just apart from changing this and rewiring the whole incentive structure you know or just having what we do have now this fragmentation of media is actually probably a good thing. I know we used, you know, we used to say that it was a bad thing, but, but the fact that there is conservative media, I mean, frankly, Tucker Carlson, I'm so impressed with him, like the coverage that he has done yeah. since this coronavirus started. And actually before that, he was doing really good stuff also in China. Um, but it's, it's important more than ever that we do have these voices because it puts the pressure. I, I had a tweet about this the other day. So you, there was a clip where a Hong Kong journalist interviewed the, some 
from the WHO, a very senior official, and asked him about Taiwan. And he just backtracked. It was like such a shameful, you know, tried to weasel out of the, the conversation. And it looked really bad. And for the first four hours, the only media that reported on it was The Blaze, was Fox News, um, was PJ Media. Yep. It was all the so-called right wing. Um, but if it didn't get picked up by them, the story would have never bubbled up. And by, by picking up on it, they were forcing, you know, the mainstream media to respond, to, to log that. And it kind of gets into the public consciousness in a way that imagine if they didn't exist, it just wouldn't have. So it's important. It, it is important that we have, you know, competing interests and, and at least there's a chance that the truth gets out. Yeah. And I know for you, as I think someone that you still consider yourself a, a good, decent liberal, it's kind of funny that you have all these allies on the right and you have to give props to conservative media, I suppose, to, to get these stories out there. Unfortunately, we, we don't have any more time, but quickly in 30 seconds. And then next time we're obviously going to do this in person and it will be great to see you again. Um, what just give me like your sense of like sort of when we get out of this and, and are we going to be OK on the other side of this thing? I think we're going to have to learn how to live with it as long as there's no vaccine, as long as antiviral, you know, whatever antiviral treatments are still not developed. We're going to have to learn how to live with the virus and there's going to be waves. Um, so, you know, we're in mitigation stage now. And um, and I, I, ho I hope our, our curve started flatten. California is doing a very good job with it. Um, so we'll see. But there's things are realigning and, and lives are, are changing. All right, Melissa, that was great seeing you, even though we had to do this through the Skype machine. We will do this in person next time, and good seeing you as always.